stand with me this morning as we go to John chapter 17. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth gospel. We are going to verse 20. And we stand in these moments not because it's rote, not because it's part of our religion, but because the Word of God is alive. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And we honor and respect it. It is the most important thing you'll hear all day is these words that we're about to say. Starting in verse 20 of John 17, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Church, this is the word of God. Amen. Amen. morning oh you're good you're all awake that helps <laughs> my name is Jeremy Pettit I am one of the teaching pastors people that hang out and talk about Jesus all the time which is a lot of you I'm also a professor at Moody Bible Institute I teach communication and this morning if you haven't been paying attention we're in a series called that church and we've been talking about the values and the people that we want to become to live out what it looks like to be the kingdom of God in this world right now. And if you're paying attention, let's be clear, you probably saw there's a checklist out in the hallway. So we got through Jesus is our hope and worship is our response last week. So you know that today we're talking about community is our design. And I just so happened to teach design. So for me, this is like, great. I teach visual design. I teach design thinking and media. I teach all kinds of concepts like this. And so when they said, you got to teach community as our design, I'm like, I get that. I get how design works. But before I go on, because I'm a professor, I also recognize right now as I teach in COVID that I teach to a room full of people here, and I also teach to a room full of people online. So... Hello, all the people watching online. I'm so glad you're with us today. Uh, I also need you to help me participate. So if you're watching at home, I'd like you to get two things to help me today. Number one, I need to get your mobile device, your phone. And by the way, if you have yours in here, take it out and turn it on. <clears throat> I need you to get your mobile device. And then later we're going to do communion. So if you want to come up with something that looks like communion, maybe you've got grape juice and Ritz crackers. I don't know what that looks like in your house. Do your best. I've heard some people say, I took communion with Coke and a saltine. I'm like, hey, Jesus is honored, okay? I'll go with it. That's what you got. I'll, I'm fine. If you're working through a design process, you recognize that art is different than design. Art is ultimately about the expression of the experience, the heart, the soul of the artist. It doesn't care about the audience. It doesn't. But design 
Design has to care about the audience because design is fundamentally about solving a problem. That's all it is. Solve the problem. These people have a problem. You're trying to design a solution for them. So how do we solve the problem? Well, the first thing is we have to do in design thinking a discovery. We have to come in and figure out what's going on that could be the problem. Before we define the problem, we have to do a little bit of our homework. So I have to start then at the very beginning. So if you have a Bible or now you've got your phone out and you can look at it, I'm perfectly fine with that. You can, you can go to Genesis 1. I'm literally starting at the beginning. And by the way, I have to preach the whole Bible in the next 30 minutes, so we'll be doing a little bit of work here. <laughs> Genesis 1. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to see a pattern that takes place when we read through Genesis 1. God is creating the world. And by the way, he's designing this world to be perfect. He knows exactly what he wants, and he's going to get it. And we see a phrase repeated throughout Genesis 1. We see it repeated six times. In Genesis 1, verse 10, God just finished creating the land and the sea on day three, and it said that he saw that it was good. Good, keep saying that, help me out. In, in Genesis 1, 12, he creates the plants and the trees on day three, and he saw that it was good. Uh, Genesis 1.18, he creates the sun and the moon, which is a little freaky to think about because he's talking about evening and morning, and how do you have evening and morning without a sun and a moon? It's a little weird, but okay. 18, he saw that it was Okay, Genesis 1.21, he creates the fish and the birds. And I had fish last night, it's so good. <laughs> he finished creating them, and he said, and it was good. good. All right. Genesis 1.25, he creates all the land animals on day six. And he said that it was good. Then he gets to humans in verse 131. And at the end of 31, it doesn't just say that he saw that it was good. It says that he saw that it was very good. Now, we say very good, and we're like, oh, it's very good. You got very good on a test. You're like, okay. I don't imagine it being, like, very good. See, the first time that my wife made calzones for me, <laughs> mm, I didn't respond with very good. I responded with, oh. And all the men in the room know exactly what that sounds like. You're like, oh, was that good? It was that good. I couldn't talk. It was that good. <laughs> the communication professor can't talk. You know it's good. It was that kind of good. He saw that it was very good. He's finished. And he sits back and he looks at everything he made and he's like, this is very good. Mm. I'm happy. And then, if you flip over one page, in two, you know what, before I do that, can, I need you all to see what he saw was very good, okay? So I need you to help me out. So I need you to take that mobile device out, okay? Turn it on. And I need, to take a, I need you to take a picture of yourself. <laughs> Just take a picture of yourself. You know how to do this. You're pretending like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never done that before. And then all of a sudden you got like, mm. Mm hmm You got poses and po mm. 
You got it? You got a picture? Take a picture. Can you see yourself? Look, look at that picture. You're like, oh, yeah, that, that's. See it? You got one, right? All right, hold on to that. God created humans and said that we were very good. He loved us. He said that we were very good. But he also said something else. So you see yourself, just the only person in the picture. And then he said for the first time. Now, it's important when God says something for the first time. In Genesis 2, you can look, verse 18. It is said that God said, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. So I will create a suitable helper. And we talk about this passage and we say, we jump immediately to marriage, but I want to pause there for a second because I just want you to think about the implication. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because he told him to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it and have dominion over it, to cultivate the garden. Okay, Adam could probably do this on his own. But then he said, be fruitful and multiply. And Adam's looking around going, um, that's going to be a problem. I can't do this by myself. And even if he said, hey, I need you to fill the earth and rule over it, and God created 10 other dudes to hang out with him, he still couldn't fulfill the second part of that. He couldn't fill the earth, multiply, be fruitful without another person who was like him, but not like him. So God, in this moment, creates woman. And every man in here has been thankful ever since. Amen. Or you should be. But here's the other implication. When he said be fruitful and multiply, he didn't just mean make one more person and yep, we're good. He meant make one more person because there need to be a lot of you. You need a lot more males and females hanging out. You need a bunch of people around you because it's not good for you to be alone. My friend Dave Olson asked me this week, well, what does that alone mean? What does it mean in Hebrew? It's a good question. You know what it means? It means by itself, but it also has an underlying implication that it will always be lacking something or incomplete. Adam was going to be nothing wrong, just incomplete without Eve, without more people around him. They would always be incomplete people. We need people. We do. We need people pragmatically, just physically we need them. So I'm going to tell you a story I've never told in public before. You ready for this? It's a little uh, scary for me, probably be scary for you by the time we're done. So in <laughs> the summer of 2015, I take my family, my parents live in Virginia Beach, so I take my family to Virginia Beach, and if you go to Virginia Beach, you obviously got to go to the beach, so I go to the beach, and I take my kids to the beach, and I love the beach. Anybody people love the beach? Yeah. Everybody's like, let's go to the beach right now. Well, that's a long way. So... <clears throat> take my kids to the beach, and I love boogie boarding and surfing. But in Virginia, the waves aren't huge. She can't go surfing as much there. I've been boogie boarding in Costa Rica and California and in Hawaii. I've had a ton of fun because it's so fun for me to do this stuff. But I take my kids, and I'm going to take them out, and we're going to get on a board for the first time. 
So I get my youngest son on the board and I get him in a wave and he takes off and rides it all the way and he's screaming, oh, this is awesome. And I get the board back and I take my middle son out. It took a little longer, got him on a wave and he wrote it in and said, that was amazing. My daughter's like, well, I'm not missing out on this. So she gets on and I let her ride in. And I go in and I'm like, all right, does anybody else want to ride? And they're like, no. And I'm like, finally, it's time for me to go ride. So I go back out. Now, if you know anything about waves, you know that waves come in in sets, and then they rest. And I actually had gone out right as it was resting. But that's cool. I'm sitting on a board in the middle of the ocean. The water's perfect. It's hot out. I'm having a great time. This is one of those, God, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you made all of this. I'm enjoying that creation that he said was good. Until about five feet in front of me, I saw one fin. And I went, okay. Now, there's a concept that we teach, uh, psychology and communication people teach, called cognitive dissonance. <laughs> cognitive dissonance is when a thought enters your brain that your brain has trying to reject, does something else with. I can't possibly manage this. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. It's too much for me to take. So I think that was probably a log. until I saw the tail fin. Now here's the thing. I grew up in Virginia for 10 years. I know that if you see a fin, you're in trouble. You see two fins, you're fine, because those are dolphins. Dolphins always swim together. Sharks swim alone. You panicking with me yet? Oh, it, let me make it worse. The summer of 2015, the summer I'm sitting in the water, is the worst shark attack summer in the history of recorded time. <laughs> 98 shark attacks because the warmth of the water around it had drawn a bunch of the feeder fish in toward the, toward the sand, and so all the predators came in with them. It gets worse. Is my slide, do you have my slide for me? This is a snapshot. Two days before, four blocks from where I was, they spotted an eight-foot bull shark. Now, I know some, I can do some basic math while I'm panicking and having cognitive dissonance. A shark is roughly middle fin to tail fin about the same distance as the tail fin or the middle fin to the front. So I knew it was about four feet, which makes this thing eight feet, which makes that my shark. Uh-oh. Next thing you should know, bull sharks are one of the top three sharks in the world to attack people with great whites and tiger sharks. Uh, bull sharks, however, of the three are known to be the most aggressive with humans for no good reason. They just like attacking us. <laughs> one, one last little tidbit. Over 60% of all shark attacks happen to people sitting on boards. Mostly because people sitting on boards look like sea turtles and seals, which is what they mostly eat. And if you can picture me on a board, <laughs> I look like a sea turtle. Are you terrified yet? Because I was. And in that moment, now here's the other thing. My son had been watching a ton of Shark Week. 
not a good idea when you're sitting there thinking, I'm not going to make it back. This thing's going to tear my leg off and my kids are going to watch me bleed out in front of them while I'm screaming to my last breath. I am terrified. So, I managed to keep my head. And I know just basic math says, okay, if I hop off this board right now, which is what I did, slowly hopped off the board and pushed the board toward where I saw the shark last. By the way, after that first fin, didn't see him. That's even more terrifying. <laughs> I pushed the board to where I saw him, and I got in the water, and I was up to my neck. And I'm like, this is not good. I'm further out than I thought. And so I do what any natural human would do. I look around. There is not another human within a hundred yards of me on either side. I am being hunted. So I pushed the board away from me, not totally thinking about the fact that I was wearing a wrist strap, which meant if it grabbed the board, it could just pulled me out by my wrist <laughs> and slowly back away. Why? Because it's a predator. With predators, you don't run. They'll chase you. So I slowly back away. And I get to the point where the water is touching the bottom of my swim trunks. And I know, okay, he can't come in this far because that's not enough water. And I'm running to my wife and trying to tell her what happened. And I'm looking for a lifeguard to tell him what happened. And I turn around and look. And the shark is spinning in circles like he's super angry that I got away. And I try to go find the lifeguard and there's nobody at the stand. And by the time I get back, the shark is gone. Let's just say none of us went swimming in the ocean the rest of the day. In fact, it took me two to three days to get over this. And when I talked to my wife afterwards, she said, yeah, I looked out and I saw that you were by yourself out there. And I was kind of like, what are you doing? Alone is not good. Okay? When you're alone... You can be picked off, and our ancestors knew that. We live in a modern world, which makes it very easy for us to think, I can sit at home and get DoorDash to deliver everything to me, and everything will work out, and I can go to the store, and I, I don't need other people. Our ancestors knew that wasn't true, because if you got alone, you were probably getting eaten. But alone is not good. It's not just about a pragmatic survival of our physical bodies. Alone is not good for our souls. You see, the deepest desire of the human heart is to know and be known by other people. We want people to know who we are. And so when we're alone for too long, it starts to mess with our souls, with our minds. I shouldn't have to explain this to you because you all sat through a pandemic and you probably had a lot more alone time than you wanted. But I just want you to think about how powerful alone is, how, how difficult it is for our souls. We use alone as one of the highest forms of punishment that we have. We cast people out of our community. We throw them in jail, meaning I'm removed and alone. And the worst case scenario, you can't even fit in with the people inside a jail. They put you in solitary confinement. Alone is one of the hardest things for us to deal with. Okay, so Jeremy, you're telling me alone is the problem. Part of it. Because if it were that simple, 
the simple solution would be, well, let's just all get together then. That should make it easy. I've asked a few of you this week, um, why is it difficult to be in community? You know what I got? I got a couple, don't be offended. A couple people said, because people suck. (laughs) People are the worst. The most difficult thing. And I'm like, eh. There's an old adage in ministry that says ministry would be amazing if it weren't for the people. (laughs) But I need to pause for a moment and I need to create a little cognitive dissonance. So I need you to hear this, okay? And I know that this thought's going to enter your brain and you're probably going to want to say, no, that's not true. I need you to hold it just for a second and ask yourself, what if it is? Do you know the primary problem, the primary problem with people in community, you ready for this, is you. Go ahead, look at yourself. No, pick it up. Take a look. I want you to take a long, hard look at the primary problem with people being in community is you. Why? People suck. You're people. (laughs) You are. I'm people. You're staring at the problem. I need you to hear this because I love you. I'm not saying this to hurt you. And when you have cognitive dissonance, you automatically want to turn me into the bad guy because you want to say, well, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm the problem. You're the problem. And here's the thing. You live in a world that's actually making it worse. Let's be clear. There is this ongoing battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of me. You live in a world, a Western, capitalistic, consumeristic society that is reinforcing the kingdom of me every day. Because the customer is always right. You should have it your way. And today, when you leave, when I leave, I'm going to drive home in my car with my family to watch my TV and play on my phone and ignore anything that I don't want to pay attention to because it's my attention. And we don't think it's strange at all that I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, from whoever I want it. We think this whole thing is about me. And your world is making it worse. Just look on your computer. It says things like my files, my apps, my, 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 my. And I'm not going to do an old boy band song, so just don't even ask. (laughs) Some of you are like, he's going to, no, I'm not singing. I'm not him. You and I live in a world that wants to reinforce that because it can take advantage of us through it. It does. Why? Because if I make it about you and you make it about you, then I can sell it to you and you'll buy it. See how this is getting harder and harder? Because generally we approach community. We generally approach community with one question, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? This is about me, so what's this going to do for me? And when we approach people like this, my friend Ken Gates, I don't know if he's here. 
He likes to say that we approach people one of three ways. We approach them either as obstacles to overcome, we approach them as objects for us to use, or we approach them as threats for us to manage or get away from. And here's the thing. The moments when you say things like people are the worst, you felt like one of those three things. You have. Okay, so this is a really complex problem we're trying to solve. Because not only are we not supposed to be alone, and that was true before there was the fall that was wrecked. That was true before hundreds of years of watching people in the Old Testament. That The first group of people that got around, you got two brothers, one of them just kills the other one. Like, I don't like what you're doing, so let me take you out. People fighting over land and power. The children of Israel are going into the promised land, and they're still complaining about everything. Moses is taking you to your version of heaven, and you're like, yeah, I don't like the water, and the food's just okay. This is our history. Even the disciples are constantly arguing with one another in front of Jesus. No, no, he's here, and we're still like, hey, listen, man, I think I'm better than you. I think he knows it. What is going on? This is a complex problem, and we're all part of the problem. How are we going to get to a solution? Is there any hope? If you were here the first week, you know that the answer, and by the way, always the right answer in Sunday school, even if you said it wrong all the time sometimes, the answer is always Jesus. (laughs) The answer is always Jesus. You do not have hope to live in real community with other people except in and through Jesus. He said this himself. We just read it a little while ago. John 17, what did he say? How are we going to do this? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. That all of them may be one. One. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me, just as you are in me and I am in them. I I am in them. Jesus is making a reference here to an incredibly beautiful concept, which is called the Trinity. The Trinity is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the perfect biblical community It is the epitome of it for all eternity. Across all of eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been one in community. I got a graphic for you. I don't know if they have it up there. This is a Celtic knot that St. Patrick was trying to explain to the Irish to explain to them, based on one of their own symbols, what the Trinity was like. The idea was that there are three persons in the Godhead, but they are completely indivisible. You can't break one of these things off without the whole thing falling apart. Do you know what this means? It means God didn't need you and I when he created the world. He was complete in and of himself. He has no need of you. So anything you think you're giving him that he's waiting on that you need, you couldn't be more wrong. In fact, 
There's some poets and theologians that believe that God created out of the universe out of the overflow of the love that was taking place between each member of the Trinity that it couldn't help but just create things out of it. He doesn't need us. But when he references the fact that you and I, Father, are one, he's talking about this concept that we may be one, and because we are one, let them be one, like we are. Let them be complete. Let them be engaged with one another and so whole that when people see it, they know that God exists and that he loves them because he sees the oneness and the unity of the people of God. But this is not easy, is it? We just said being in community is not easy. So why are we having a problem? I think the reason is because we didn't pay attention to something he said in here. That if you're going to enter biblical community, it's not about you. A little more cognitive dissonance? A little rolling around in your head yet? It's not about you. It's about him. If you make this community, you come to this community just to get what you can from us, then you're going to be just like the rest of the world. That's all they expect. That's all they expect. They expect you to come to take. Is that how Jesus came? Jesus came to give. He said, you're going to have to be one in. Now, let me just encourage you. If you have been a person of faith for a regular several years now, I just want you to go out and read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Because if you think community is hard, living in a Western culture, imagine trying to found a church and a seminary with the rise of the Nazis in Germany. This is a little more difficult. So when he's talking about this, he understands how difficult it is, but Bonhoeffer keeps pointing back to the fact that I cannot approach you except in and through Jesus. If I do it any other way, I will wreck you. And ultimately, I'll be wrecking myself. In and through Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus said, let them be one. They are in me. In me. That we have stepped into Christ. That we have put on Christ. You see this word in Christ throughout the rest of the New Testament. That we are taking on the mind, the heart, the love of Jesus. And I'm stepping into that space. And then, and only then, am I beginning to communicate through it. Last week, Alex Hartman said that we are to place God continually before us as an act of worship. Bonhoeffer would tell you that you are to place God continually before you also every time that you engage another brother or sister. Because you're going to have to speak through Christ. That Jesus is not just the mediator between God and man, but between man and man. If you approach each other without Jesus in between you two to act as your mediator, to think through him, why? Because if I start trying to talk to you and I talk to you on my own self, I will take from you. But if I speak to Jesus first and speak to you through Jesus, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to start seeing you as a person who's deeply broken but deeply loved by God. And so I'm going to talk to you as someone who's valuable and desperately in need of redemption and just like me. And we can be one now. Why? Because of Jesus. 
because of Jesus. But this isn't easy. This isn't easy because we want to keep falling back into this kingdom of me mentality. But wait, what am I going to get out of it? I'm not going to get taken care of. I'd just like you to point to pay attention to the fact this is John 17. Just go ahead and look in your Bible if you have it open. Look at what happens in John 18. Just first verse. After Jesus is done praying, that's what it says, he goes to the garden, gets arrested, and gets killed. This is the last thing he says. If the first thing he said was, it's good, and you know what? It's not good for you to be alone. It's amazing that Jesus, who had all of this planned out, knew exactly what was coming. The last thing, the Son of God. Think about it on your deathbed. You talk about your last words. This is the last thing recorded that Jesus said to the group. Why? Because they split up after this. What's the last thing, the most important thing, the one he wanted you to remember? Be one in me. Even as the Father and I are one, be one so that the world will know that God is real and he loves you. All right, how do we do this then? Practically speaking, you're saying, I'm having a hard time picturing Jesus standing between me and you because somehow he's some kind of weird ghost that has to stand here and I've got to talk through this. And I just want you to ask yourself, if Jesus were the courier delivering the messages that you were going to give to the person and you said, hey, I need you to go tell Dave something, what would you tell Jesus to go tell them? Then speak those words. Because I can't say, hey, Jesus, tell them they suck. Jesus is like, I'm not going to say that. See the problem? I can't tell him that. I can't. The ushers can come forward. So what does biblical community look like when we do this? When we start to actually see how we communicate with one another, not to take from one another, but to give because realistically we are speaking in and through Jesus. What does that look like? You ready for this? That we would know one another and be known by one another. 1 Corinthians 13, at the very end, he's talking about love, and he said, when we get to the end, when everything starts to be perfect, then I will be known even as I am fully known. I will know as even as I am fully known. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. There won't be anything left, no shame, no hiding, no nothing. You will know everything about me and you'll still love me. Isn't that what you want? The deepest desire of your heart is not to have to hide And you can go ahead and pass it out as soon as you start. Second thing is that we'll be a community that speaks to one another to build trust. Because that trust, and we said this before, that trust builds transparency. But here's what I need you to understand. From a communication perspective, communication people talk about the concept of self-disclosure. The more I tell you about me, the more you trust me. The more you trust me, the more I'm willing to tell you about myself but it's a cycle. It doesn't just end that way because the more I tell you about me, the more you trust me. The more I tell you about me, you trust me and I'm more transparent with you and we disclose more and more. This is how every good relationship you've ever been in is built. I tell you a little bit, you're like, cool, I like that. And you're like, all right, let me tell you more and more and more. 
And that's why two people that have been married for a really long time know a lot about each other because they just keep, if that relationship's healthy, sharing more and more about themselves. That's why your close friends you've had for 30 years, they know a lot about you. That trust leads to transparency, that leads to more trust, that leads to more transparency. And ever opening of ourselves, it gives us the place to be healthy and flourish. We're also going to hold one another accountable. We're going to hold one another accountable. Not simply for doing bad things. Because when we say accountability, people are like, oh, great, somebody's going to tell me all the stuff I did wrong. No, I'm going to hold you accountable for the good gifts that God gave you and how I'm going to push you, how I'm going to challenge you, how I'm going to spur you on in love and good deeds. I'm going to hold you accountable for what God gave you so we can go get it. Can I get one of those? Thank you. And lastly, we're going to be people who are led by the Holy Spirit. People that walk after the Spirit because the Spirit was sent. When Jesus left, he said, I send the Holy Spirit that you will be comforted, that you will be convicted of your sin, and that you will be guided into all truth. That you will be opened to be healthy. That you will walk in that Spirit. And you know what the Spirit always does? It always points back to Jesus. Always. But here's the choice that's sitting in front of you today. And I need you to hear this clearly because you're going to take it a little lighter than you should. See, you're going to hold that cup in your hand and I have to ask you a question. This selfie that you're holding in your hand is a picture of the kingdom of me. If the kingdom of me had a grand hall where a feast was going to be held, this picture would be hanging at the end of the room so we could all worship you. (laughs) Go ahead, look at it. Pull it up. I'm serious. Pull it up. Hold it in your hand. Because I want you to see the choice that sits in front of you. The choice is the kingdom of me or the kingdom of God. And let me make something super clear to you. You can't pick both. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Can't be done. So you're going to have to choose Which is it? The kingdom of me or the kingdom of God? Now let me be clear about what happens at the end of this. The kingdom of God when it comes in Revelation 21. So I've preached all the way through the Bible just saying I got through in 30 minutes. (laughs) Jump to the end. Revelation 21, it says that the new city that comes down out of heaven, that God will be their God. And he will dwell with them. Not with you with them, all of us, together. It is always communal when he talks about the kingdom of God. It is always about community. It is not about you. This is the choice. You know what we call that place? We call that place heaven. That's what sits at the end of it. But let me make something super clear to you. This heaven is not a democracy. You are not gonna get a vote. And that's hard. Cognitive dissonance? You don't get a vote in heaven. You get to surrender to a king who knows everything about you. And you don't get to pick the house you live in because he built it custom for you. So you're going to have to pick. Which one is it? And I'm going to make you make a choice. And I'm going to give you a 
few seconds, minute to think about this, pray about it, and I'm willing to sit silent while you do. Because if you're going to choose this, know that this is the path where he said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So here's the choice. Delete this selfie. And if I can't push you a little further, don't ever take one again, because I think we should be done with this by now. <laughs> Seriously, it's been 20 years. I know the first self-portrait's 1839, I study media. But the selfie's only about 20 years old, and I think we should just kill it now. If you're ready to say, I'm willing to follow this path, then delete this picture. That's the choice you're making. I'm deleting this picture and I'm saying, hey, I'm going to deny myself and the kingdom of me has to die if I'm going to live in the kingdom of heaven. That's the choice you put in front of you, always. Your choice. Take a minute and think about it. I don't want you to delete it just because some guy told you to. I want you to stare long and hard at your own face and recognize what you're about to give up. Because it's not easy. And there are things the king is going to ask you to do that may not be what you think is best for you. He knows what's best for you. And he would never take advantage of you. If the band can come up and get ready... On the night he was betrayed, the king took the cup and said, this is my blood. He takes the cup in front of people who he knows will abandon him, who will seek their own selfish community. He takes the cup knowing full well all the stuff that's about to happen. He calls it. And he still says, this one's for you because I love you more than you'll ever know. And every time you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me, the one who stands between you and God, the one who stands between you and your brother or sister. Do it in remembrance of me that I came to make you one. And after that, he took bread and he broke it. This is my body broken for you. His body is broken so that his body can be one. Do you understand? He's not going to take advantage of you because he already sacrificed everything he had just to bring you home. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of him. As we sing this song, this is a song that you will sing and I will sing someday when we stand in front of the man because he is 
worthy. Sing this to him together. 